from Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. In her latest book, How America Creates S-Hole Countries, former Congress member Cynthia McKinney details how from Venezuela to Afghanistan to Rwanda to Vietnam, the United States has not been a force for good, but has left a global trail of destruction and exploitation. We talked to her about what's happening today. So the system is rigged not just inside the United States, but the entire international system is rigged. And the rigging of the international system was done by Democrats and Republicans. And attendees at the annual UN Conference on the Status of Women speak on issues of environmental sustainability and access to water. It's important for water to be able to run free. It's important that these bottled water companies stop trying to privatize the water because these are not sustainable ways for our people to be able to, to get water. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, war was the theme in D.C. this week, starting with the aftermath of the March 16th hands-off Venezuela rally and march that drew hundreds to the White House and more to sister rallies across the country. Chantel James filed this report. U.S. hands off Venezuela! U.S. hands off Venezuela! Coalition's Hands Off Venezuela action assembled thousands of people from all across the country, Albuquerque, Philadelphia, the Midwest, and elsewhere, before the White House in Lafayette Park on Saturday for a vocal protest of the U.S. attempted coup in Venezuela. After a rally where organizers such as Medea Benjamin of Code Pink, Eugene Perrier, and Reverend Graylin Hagler spoke, a critical mass of marchers processed to the Trump Hotel and through the streets nearby. Signs read, no to U.S. coup plots and U.S. out of Latin America, among other slogans. Protesters urged Congress to pass Bill H.R. 1004, which would prohibit military intervention in Venezuela. And they drew parallels between the regime change the U.S. is attempting in Venezuela and patterns of U.S. imperialism across the globe, vowing that not in their names will Venezuela become another Iraq. Anna Sotorio of Chicago's Party for Socialism and Liberation was among the speakers. She calls out hypocrisy in U.S. foreign policy when aid is needed at home. My name is Anna, and I, I came here on the bus with Answer Chicago. On that bus, we have people from Indiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Michigan. We organized and came here to say to the U.S. war machine, hands off Venezuela. We came here to tell the people of Venezuela that we are here with you, that our struggle, your struggle is our struggle. Tu lucha es nuestra lucha. We have more in common with the working class that is out in the hundreds of thousands defending Maduro, Chavez, and the Bolivarian movement. Why? They continue to build a revolution that has built new homes for everyone, eliminated illiteracy, has free education, health care, and recognizes oppressed sectors of society like indigenous people, Afro-Latinos, and women. The U.S. is using the same playbook they used in 
in Iraq and Libya. And we are not going to let that happen to Venezuela. The people of the U.S. do not want war. U.S. wars do not benefit working class people. War only benefits the handful of people controlling the wealth that workers created. They have no right to talk about humanitarian aid when they continue to terrorize poor black and Latino neighborhoods where police kill our young people, close our schools, and do nothing about lead in the water in Flint and Chicago and all other all across the country. Why can't we get humanitarian aid in our neighborhoods? Where are the shipments of food and basic necessities going to the south side of Chicago? One in five people in Chicago live without adequate food. There's an estimated 20,000 homeless children going to Chicago public schools. The enemies we face are on Wall Street and the Pentagon. From Chicago, Washington, D.C. to Caracas, we stand against U.S. imperialism and we will put an end to U.S. U.S. supremacy and white supremacy once and for all. Right. Hands up, Venezuela. Hasta la victoria siempre. can join efforts against imperialism in Venezuela, visit answercoalition.org. From the White House, this is Chantal James. This week also marked two anniversaries of war and military aggression, the 16th anniversary of the start of the invasion of Iraq by the United States and the UK on March 19, 2003, an illegal attack that left up to 2 million Iraqis dead, millions more displaced, and the land and infrastructure of one of the world's most ancient cultures shattered and poisoned. And Palestinian rights activists are beginning to mark the one-year anniversary of the start of the Great March of Return, when residents of Gaza have protested military occupation, indiscriminate murder by Israeli soldiers, and being forced to live in the world's largest open-air prison, with inadequate water, food, medical care, or the basic necessities of life. Since the peaceful protests began on March 30, 2018, 24,000 people have been injured and more than 200 Palestinians have been killed, most by live sniper fire from IDF soldiers positioned behind bunkers, barbed wire, and a fence dozens of yards away from protesters. On Tuesday, March 19th, at Plymouth Congregational Church in Northeast D.C., Ahmed Abu Artema, one of the founding organizers of the Great March of Return, spoke and appeared on a panel that also included the human rights attorney and author Nora Erekat. She discussed the legal and propagandistic binds on the people of Gaza. You can say Hamas three times and not examine how did 500 children die in the span of 51 days and could did not have the right to become refugees from war again. And then the second level, even outside of the Gaza Strip. Since 1948, Palestinian refugees have been securitized and the threat they pose is that of existing. They pose a threat to a, a settler myth of temporal continuity and a physical continuity of uninterrupted Jewish presence in Palestine for 2,000 years. So their existence shatters that myth. Other D.C. Palestinian solidarity events leading up to the March 30th anniversary of the Great March of Return included the annual Israel Apartheid Week, 
sponsored by Students for Justice in Palestine at George Washington University. And in a dramatic move by establishment politics, this week the advocacy group MoveOn.org called on the Democratic presidential candidates to boycott the annual conference held by the controversial lobbying group APAC, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee. A U.N. report out this month said that Israel may have committed war crimes in these random murders, including of journalists, children, and medical personnel during the past year during the Great March of Return. In Africa news, the publication Face to Face Africa reported that Tanzania has flown tons of medicine, rice, and maize to help thousands of people displaced by the flooding after the deadly cyclone Ida hit Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi, killing more than 100 people while many more are still missing. And Liberians living in the United States are racing against a March 31st deadline to convince Donald Trump to extend their deferred enforced departure, a rule that has given Liberian refugees protected status in the United States because of the Liberian Civil War and the outbreak of the deadly Ebola virus in that West African country. The Trump administration has shut down most such temporary and renewable programs that have protected many immigrants from deportation. Fata Akwe, chief organizer for the Liberian DED Lobby Day, said that the deferred enforced departure rule has created annual uncertainty for Liberians living in the U.S., while also not giving them any pathway to citizenship as they have established families, work life, and businesses in the U.S. I can't just honestly blame the Trump administration because Liberians have been advocating for a pathway to citizenship for a long time, even under the Obama administration. So during the Obama administration, President Obama sunset or, or ended the program temp- technically on March 31st of 2018. We mm-hmm. campaigned heavily last year to extend the program, and the Trump administration gave us the sunset of this year, March 2019. And so it's both a part of a history of immigration policy that has not granted us a pathway to citizenship, but also bureaucracy. Congress is the only body that can pass the comprehensive policy that we need to grant Liberians a pathway to citizenship. And so it's an appeal for all levels. But the first and foremost is March 31st is approaching and we're, we're appealing to the president to extend the program. Akwe added that the Liberian community is supporting passage of H.R. 6, a bill that she said will provide a pathway to citizenship for immigrants in temporary programs, including Deferred Enforced Departure, or DED, Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, and DACA, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, for young people brought to the United States as children. For more international news, I'm joined by On the Ground's geopolitical analyst, the author and activist, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, of course, the first thing I want to ask you about is Jair Bolsonaro's trip to Washington and his meeting with Trump this week. There were demonstrations outside the White House to greet Bolsonaro. But I think more people were concerned about what was happening inside. And apparently his meeting, not only with Trump, but with uh, the CIA and uh, one account talked about him introducing his son to the CIA. What's your take on this? 
This is a very ominous turn of events that the self-proclaimed Trump of the tropics, Mr. Bolsonaro, came to the Oval Office and visited Langley, Virginia, no doubt with plans cooked up to try to subvert Venezuela, plans that I dare say are already in motion. The other ominous and dangerous aspect of this trip was Mr. Trump's saying that he planned to try to designate Brazil as a so-called non-NATO ally, which will mean more military cooperation between Brazil and the United States, which is quite dangerous for the hemisphere, quite dangerous for Mexico and Cuba in particular. In fact, I would say that this present alliance between Washington and Brasilia is a throwback to the 19th century, when Brazil and the United States were the two major enslaving power in this hemisphere, and in fact the world, with a decided focus on enslaving Africans. And point of personal privilege, I wrote about this in my book, The Deepest South, United States, Brazil, and the African Slave Trade. But in any case, there are contradictions with regard to Mr. Bolsonaro's trip, not least being his close financial and economic ties to the People's Republic of China, which is now in the crosshairs if you take the Pentagon planning seriously. Brazil has also been stealing soybean markets from U.S. Midwestern farmers, that is to say soybeans exported to China. Keep in mind as well that President Duque of Colombia has been reprimanded by the Wall Street Journal because supposedly he's part of this anti-Caracas cabal as well, Supposedly, he, too, is a close military ally of the United States, but he's spending this week in China, in Chengdu, seeking financing for his battered economy. So if you ask me, I think that many of these South American nations will be trying to play a double game, that is to say, cooperating with the United States in the hemisphere militarily, but still trying to keep those lines of finance and economics open to the People's Republic of China. I interviewed a Brazilian activist last week at the rally to commemorate Marielle Franco, the Brazilian politician and human rights activist who was slain, assassinated last year, a year ago. And this activist was basically talking about the links between Bolsonaro. It's being investigated in terms of these links between Bolsonaro and these alleged killers of Franco, but also the links between Bolsonaro's son and Steve Bannon and the so-called movement globally of right-wing movements and individuals and organizations. So I also thought it was pretty interesting, ominous, that he may have been in meetings with Bannon here and that Bannon may have been included in these meetings here in Washington and and maybe even uh, that the son went to the CIA headquarters. Well, a further aspect of this Brazilian trip is that just within the last 24 hours, Mr. Bolsonaro's predecessor, Michelle Timmer, has been arrested. Now, he is also right wing, but this also goes hand in glove with the arrest of Lula da Silva, the former president of Brazil, who would have been president, except he had been jailed as well and is still in jail. I should also say that there is a religious spin to what's going on in this hemisphere. That is to say that right-wing Protestant evangelical sects embodied by Vice President Michael Pence are moving quite aggressively in this hemisphere. This is being opposed by certain progressive Catholics, but in some ways this represents a throwback, I'm afraid to say, to the 16th century. I would be remiss to exit the 
this conversation about this hemisphere without talking about Haiti. There's been a scandal under the radar about these U.S. operatives being arrested in in a botch plot to get funds to Haiti's president. What do you know about that? What can you tell us? Well, all I know is what I read on The Intercept, uh, which you know you can find online, and it talked about a, a very striking plot of these U.S. mercenaries to go to Haiti, supposedly to rob the Haitian treasury of millions of dollars in league with the leader of Haiti. Now, I haven't been able to validate or confirm what I read in The Intercept, but certainly I think it's something to ponder. And the last thing I want to ask you about today is on Thursday, there was a rally outside the U.S. Holocaust Museum by victims and descendants of of genocide in Central and South America and uh, joining with um, descendants of survivors of the Holocaust, uh, basically demanding that Elliot Abrams be stripped of his membership or association with something called the Museum's Committee on Conscience. And, of course, you know, they're talking about Abrams' role in a documented role in the genocide in uh, places like uh, El Salvador and other places in Central America, which they believe that he is uh, attempting to uh, repeat or recreate in terms of these so-called interventions or attempts at humanitarian aid in Venezuela. Well, that is heartening news, speaking of that demonstration against the butcher, Elliot Abrams, who but for a presidential pardon might still be in jail because of the atrocities he was responsible for directing in Central America in the 1980s. And, of course, we all know about his dastardly role in Venezuela, where he's trying to organize a military coup or otherwise repeat in Venezuela what the United States did in Chile in the 1970s, that is to say, impose fascism. So it's quite appropriate for this demonstration to unfold at the Holocaust Museum, and I wish those protesters well. Okay, well, we're going to keep an eye and ear to all these stories. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Thanks for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Now, in a brief roundup of this week's national environmental news, kale, strawberries, and spinach topped the list as a new report showed that nearly 70% of U.S. produce contained dangerous pesticide residue. And as so many turned their attention toward outdoors in spring, there's another guilty verdict for Monsanto as the jury finds the weed killer Roundup was a substantial factor in causing a man's cancer. And late Tuesday, a federal judge temporarily blocked fracking on more than 300,000 acres in Wyoming, ruling that the Interior Department illegally failed to consider the climate impact of leasing public land to oil and gas developers. And speaking of judges, a Wisconsin judge ruled Thursday that all those laws passed in a Republican lame duck session of the state legislature designed to strip power from the incoming Democratic state government are unconstitutional. In D.C., activists organized by the group Empower D.C. rallied on Monday in support of public housing outside Mayor Bowser's State of the District address. 
The rally occurred the same week that a study was released by the National Community Reinvestment Coalition, stating that D.C. is experiencing the greatest intensity of gentrification of any city in the country, with about 40% of the district's lower-income neighborhoods experiencing gentrification between 2000 and 2013. And finally, in culture and media. On Saturday, March 23rd at 6 p.m. at Howard's Blackburn University Center, there will be a screening of the documentary "In the Name of Your Daughter" about the fight to end female genital mutilation in the Mara region of Tanzania, which is in the north of the country. The screening will be followed by a post-film discussion. And on March 24th at 2:30 p.m., the program "Headed for Extinction and What to Do About It." Will be hosted by Metro DC Democratic Socialists of America and Extinction Rebellion at the Shaw Neighborhood Library, eighteen o one Seventh Street in Northwest DC. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, women here in the U.S. and around the world fighting for their families and their communities. Stay with us. This is Michelle Roberts, and I'm on the ground at the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, 63, here with Desiree Harp representing the Human Rights Network. Desiree, tell us why you're here at the United Nations. Ikali kama inomahnota e onatatis atemitoya ke inomahnota e onatatis. Hello, I come from the Mishwa Onatatis people, and I'm here as a representative from Northern California tribes. And I came with Chief Kalin Sisk, who is with the Winnemucca people, and we are under the umbrella of the Human Rights Network. And we came with Pua Case from. Hawaii, and so we were trying to get our general statement on the floor. We were not chosen, but something that we wanted everybody to understand is that as Indigenous people, it is important for our rights to, you know, protect our sacred sites. It's important for those to be honored, and a lot of people they get this idea that as indigenous people that we want ownership of the land or that we are focused on that. When when really it's not about who owns the land. We 
when we're born into these places, we have a responsibility to take care of the land. And that isn't just coming from the intellectual place. It's also coming from a spiritual place because from the very beginning, our stories um, are connected to these places. Our ceremonies are connected to these places. And so we can't just defend the right for us to have ceremonies we also have to defend our right to pray for for all of our relatives in these places and to stand for all of our relatives in these places and I think that people just don't understand how deep our connection is to these places not just humans but even our connection to the salmon our connection to the water our connection to the land and so we have a responsibility to speak up for those those who cannot speak for themselves. And so I think that more than anything, that's what we wanted people to understand is how this is about spirituality. And I think that that's something that isn't really being discussed in a lot of the laws. You know, everybody is coming from this place of policy, but people need to understand that us having the right to pray should also be a part of the policy. And not just us having the right to pray, but if we're going to be the ones putting ourselves on the front lines of these lands for the rest of our lives because we believe that it is our spiritual obligation to protect these places, then we should be the ones who have the right to speak for these places. And so that's really what we're trying to do is we're trying to make it so that way we as indigenous people can speak on behalf of the work that we're already doing in these places. Wow, that's powerful. So Desiree, your statement did not make it to the floor. So what is it that you do now? What is it that you do next to continue making sure that the awareness goes out to people? Tell me about this uh, run that you were talking about. So... Okay, there's two different things. First, I want to say that the biggest thing that I've learned is that policies, they take a long time to be created and they take an even longer time to be implemented into these government systems. And so while that is important, the priority of me being in this space is also about the connections that I'm building. And so it hasn't been very long that indigenous people from around the world have been able to meet in this way. And so I think that it's really important to strengthen our network because... I know that the power is in numbers. And so if, if I come here as an indigenous person, my voice is not going to you know, matter as much as if I have a whole group of indigenous people that are, are speaking. And I would really like to advocate for more North American indigenous people to come to the UN. And I'm just seeing how we need more indigenous women caucuses in these spaces. And as far as the work that I'm doing with Chief Colleen, you know, back at home, we're going to continue in Northern California to try and stop these dams from being raised so that way we can bring back our wild salmon and to continue to protect these waters because it's important for water to be able to run free. It's important that these bottle water companies stop trying to privatize the water because these are not sustainable ways for our people to be able to, to get water and I think that a lot of people think 
think that the ends justify the means by if you raise a dam and it floods all of the traditional sites of the Winnemuwentu people, they think that that's okay, or they think it's okay to wipe out an entire population like the salmon just to be able to divert the water. But people aren't paying attention to how that water, when it's being diverted, isn't even going to the places that it should be going to. It's all going towards big ag, and it's all going towards Los Angeles. <laughs> and you know, there's a lot of people that don't even have access to this water. And there's better infrastructure that could be put into place that's more sustainable. And that's really what we want to to talk about, is we want to talk about our government being held accountable for the desecration of our waters and our lands. Awesome. So, Desiree, tell our listening audience, what is it can they do to support the work of the Native people? So there are so many different movements that are all around the world right now. I definitely think that something that people can do at a very basic level is they can just understand how we are reflections of the earth. And so helping people to just understand their connection to nature and not see nature as something that's separate from us and when when we can heal from our own historical trauma and understand the ways that we've been colonized then in turn the land is going to heal too and so one of the biggest ways that people can help is just through creating that prayer for us as indigenous people to stop being displaced and not just praying for us but praying for the land and praying for the water and praying for all of these living beings but we also have political campaigns as well and we have prayer journeys that people can join us on. I organized the Run for Salmon prayer journey that is in Northern California, R-U-N the number four, Salmon and if you go to runforsalmon.org there are ways that you can donate to our fund to help us to protect our waters and to help us to bring back our salmon but there's also Mauna Kea I came here also with Pua Kea's from Mauna Kea and that's M-A-U-N-A-K-E-A and you can look up the Mauna Kea movement online and I know that they need a lot of support right now as well helping to protect the highest mountain in the world from the seafloor level and you know trying to help to protect this water aquifer that is giving just life to the whole island and that water is the highest water in the whole world and so I just encourage you to pay attention to Mauna Kea as they go and they take a stand for their mountain and uh, there's just so many ways that you can help to raise awareness around these movements. Thank you so much. You've been on the ground with Desiree Hart and we're here at the United Nations in New York City. Thank you Desiree. Thank you. Mariama and I'm from Niger, West Africa. I'm here for the CSW 63 to see how we can all work together and to empower women's situation in Africa. I'm working in the mining sector and sometimes we're trying to help women working around, working around the mining so to show them how to avoid pollution and to care about their health, to show them 
how to see the power of going to school, this is what we are doing. If you can help us, helping other women working around mines is by doing some work together, sensibilization work, and see we get many things to do together. Michelle Roberts and I'm here at the United Nations on the ground with my sister Rui Hana Payan from New Zealand. Rui Hana, tell us why are you here at UNCSW 63? Kia ora Michelle, I am here representing the Anglican Church of Aotearoa New Zealand and Polynesia. I was sent here by my archbishops to just to understand more of what the Commission on the Status of Women's Work involves and to uh, make relationships where possible and see if there are relationships here that we as a church family can build upon and build something to further our mission. Awesome. So, you know, as we first of all, I want to say how our hearts are still extended to you and all of your relations in the communities throughout New Zealand on this tragedy that occurred while you were here in New York. Yes, thank you. It is still uh, taking time to get used to the fact that New Zealand now has joined many, many of our other countries of the world and that this issue of prejudice and terrorism and hate has permeated our own our culture and our society in New Zealand and it's really tragic uh, for the families and the community of Linwood Christchurch and in the wider South Island and especially the Muslim community who have experienced this significant devastation in the last week. So the sustainable development goals and the protections for women that they're talking about here at the UN this week and last week, how does that relate to the work that you're doing on the ground in New Zealand? So we are really, really proactive and assertive in supporting our brothers and sisters in Fiji, Tonga and Samoa and American Samoa and the threat to their existence basically in those islands due to climate change and warming sea temperature levels and increased pollution and damage to the world's oceans but particularly these places who rely so heavily on uh, the ocean for employment for survival in terms of food and transportation in terms of travelling to and from their different villages so we support them 100% ourselves even in New Zealand we have a huge culture of ocean recreation ocean economy and we actually have a lot of work before us in terms of ensuring that that resource and that Tonga, we call it a Tonga, which is a a special inheritance that we receive from previous generations, is still there 
to pass on to our children and grandchildren so they don't have their rights extinguished. So your stems basically from an inherent right to be able to use the oceans and enjoy the oceans and protect the oceans. Those are our rights as Indigenous people. And so it stems from there. And further to that, it speaks to the level of aspiration we have for future generations. So what plans do we have? What condition do we want to leave our season? What potential economies do we want to see utilised? How much resources is there to be passed on to the next generation? But also what condition are they in? So there's a lot of steps in the process, which means there's a lot of opportunity for grassroots women and girls and boys uh, to be more active in guardianship and stewardship of these resources in the field of science and tech. And certainly as a church, we want to, we want to support that mission field which I definitely see it as being a mission field in terms of passing on this planet in a better condition than what we've received it in. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. While both the U.S.-backed illegal attempted coup in Venezuela and the deadly weaponizing of the issue of immigration are just two glaring recent examples of how the U.S. has both destroyed people, societies, and nature all over the world, and the hatred directed toward Muslims or people from South and Central America or Africa or Asia, truly illustrates the ignorance of world history and ignorance of the cultures of non-European people, indigenous people who were, in case after case, murdered to establish colonies like New Zealand, like Australia, or like the United States, where some whites now want to exclude black and brown people. With me to help unpack this certainly heightened stage of imperialism and neocolonial angst is the author and human rights activist Cynthia McKinney, who served 12 years in the United States Congress representing the people of Georgia. Her most recent book is How the U.S. Created S-Hole Countries. She joins us from Bangladesh. Welcome to On the Ground, Representative McKinney. Well, thank you so much for inviting me to come on your show. So there's so much that I want to ask you. So let's just start with what I laid out in the introduction. What's your reaction to both this horrible massacre in New Zealand and what the U.S. is attempting in Venezuela? And are the two connected for you? Well, I am literally just now finding a, a report about Brenton Tarrant, Tarrant, I guess is his name, in, from New Zealand. And it appears that he has quite a travel background. And I don't know if this has been reported or not, but it has been confirmed 
that between 2016 and 2018, he traveled to Bulgaria, Turkey, Croatia, Hungary, and also Israel. So this was a young man that got around. Now I'm wondering what was he doing and how did he get around? Because these are trips that perhaps regular, ordinary working folks can't get to do all of that kind of travel. And what was he doing there? There's also reportedly a relationship with MI5 or that he was known by MI5. So there's a lot of questions about New Zealand, the situation, the tragedy that occurred in New Zealand. And there's already a community of people who are trying to get to the truth. Now, the interesting thing about New Zealand is that all of a sudden the New Zealand government has said, well, it's illegal to possess the official footage, the raw footage, the original footage. Well, that's rather strange because it is that raw original footage that provides the ability to provide a forensic analysis of exactly what happened. And because there are people in the civilian community who are formerly military, who are aware of the kinds of weapons, the way the body or, or bodies fall when they are shot by those weapons, the pattern of blood spatter that is supposed to occur when human bodies are shot at close range and uh, anomalies like no ricocheting bullets off of the walls. Of course, you know, when Bobby Kennedy was killed, there were bullets that were lodged in the threshold of the door. They were lodged in the uh, walls. And that's how we know that there was more than one shooter in the uh, hotel where Bobby Kennedy was celebrating his California victory just because there were so many bullet holes left. So there is enough to warrant the truth community coming together once again, as they did with September 11th. And uh, actually they started with the murder of John Kennedy in 1963. You've had the truth community. And that's only been accelerated now with September 11th and other events like the Boston Marathon bombing. And so uh, there's a lot of investigation, I think, from the civil society side, from the average ordinary citizen truth seeker side that needs to be done to give us the answers that I don't believe we're going to get from the New Zealand government. When you were mentioning the the travels of this alleged killer in New Zealand, it reminded me of, of something I wanted to ask you, which is this, I don't know what they call the movement of these far-right governments, individuals, and organizations around the globe that Steve Bannon is doing so much to foster, and also the fact that he was in meetings when this uh, neo-fascist 
president of Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro, just visited the White House, met with Donald Trump, that apparently Steve Bannon was in one of the meetings that included uh, Bolsonaro's son, who met with Steve Bannon even before Bolsonaro was elected, and people believe was very much connected with the disinformation campaign, the propaganda campaign that flooded Brazil in advance of the elections and contributed to Bolsonaro's win. So I guess I wanted to know, like, from where you are in Bangladesh, what's your view of this growing movement of these far-right individuals, you know, who this killer may have been traveling among and connecting with around the globe? Well, I sort of reject the characterization of far-right and left and socialist and all of these characterizations that are in vogue these days, because I believe the fundamentals of politics have drastically changed literally as we have been watching and participating in the political system and the political process in the United States, because what we thought was left was we thought the Democrats were the left and we thought the Republicans were the right. However, What we witnessed in 2016 was that the establishment Republicans fled the Republican Party and ran to and landed in the Democratic Party supporting Hillary Clinton. And what was it that the Republican Party nominee was saying? Well, basically he was saying The regime change wars are crazy. The United States needs to focus on the United States first and not the rest of the world. That the United States needs to stop trying to be a policeman for the world. Now, that's the kind of language that I use. And those are the kinds of policies that I have advocated for the entirety of my political career. So I identify myself as the left. So what we witnessed, I believe, in 2016 was a flipping of the situation, which a lot of people didn't really understand. So you had a lot of pro-peace, anti-war people who were supporting Hillary Clinton alongside the pro-war, anti-peace people who were supporting Hillary Clinton. And so now we've got this language, which I believe is a language of convenience rather than a language of reality or accuracy. And so what I would rather say is that we are now at a crossroads where you are seeing a movement of decentralization versus centralization. And so uh, do we want to see power more centralized? Do we want to see power decentralized? Do we want to see uh, a continuation of these wars? Or do we want to stop these wars that have nothing to do with the U.S. interest? Do we want to see globalization continue as it has been practiced? Or do we want to focus more on the needs of the people, which has been referred to as populism? So I think that the the shorthand 
is the left and the right, the socialists and the whatever, you know, and, and, and so that's the way people are trying to characterize what's happening now. But what's happening now is way more complicated and complex than just that shorthand. So I use those terms because it fits the way I understand the world, because one yeah. of the, one of the important aspects of this right wing movement is white supremacy, are the ideas of white supremacy, and also the idea that white people, be they in Europe, be they in the United States, or in various settler colony states around the, the world, need to protect not only white identity, but the ruling class and the super rich, the 1%, the people we call the 1%. So what they call Western civilization uh, and protect that civilization from people migrating to Europe. And, you know, we definitely want to get to that, you know, in terms of, of, of Libya and from areas that we've destroyed like Syria and Afghanistan. So that's one way that I think that it's about more than just decentralization or centralization, but it has a lot to do with people like Steve Bannon, uh, people like Donald Trump, people like the ambassador to Germany, the U.S. ambassador to Germany, for example, who said that it's his job to consolidate the right the right wing in Europe, which has elements of being anti-immigrant, anti-refugee, which is blaming the destabilization of Europe on immigrants and is also uh, talking about how European society or culture is endangered by the browning of Europe. Well, are you suggesting that white supremacy doesn't exist in the left? No. No. So then what so then I don't really understand your argument. White supremacy stands as a reality that we have to deal with whether we are left or right. So I would not ignore the white supremacists on the left in order to vilify the white supremacists on the right. Yeah, I guess a lot of people who have postured themselves as being on the left and not really on the left. So Hillary Clinton is not on the left, you know, there's a difference between what people used to call like liberals and people who even have co-opted the term progressive, I think from people on the left. And while I think that there are people who are challenged with their white privilege on the left, I see more people on the left are the people who have been fighting against imperialism and fighting against racism, fighting against sexism and all the other realms of inequality. And so that's why the construct still works for me. In my lifetime, I've seen the movements that I've been encouraged by, the fight against apartheid in South Africa, the anti-war mobilization before Iraq. That was on the left, the true left, not the people like Madeleine Albright, who said that half a million Iraqi children being murdered was worth it for U.S. aggression and imperialism there. So so then you've already accepted that the situation is far more complicated because the left isn't really the left. Yes, yes, You're yes. You're absolutely right. Yes. There is a pseudo left. And that's why I don't want to conflate the left with the pseudo left. And I don't want to leave any doubt in anybody's mind 
about what the left is and what the left's values are as I see the left. Yes. yes. So then the next thing, and this is why I argue for the precision of our language. Now, when you talk about the destabilization of Europe, let's understand what's happening now. Europe is actually being destabilized. And Europe is being destabilized by the very people who have also destabilized the rest of the world. And why and how are they doing it? They are doing it so as to change the demographic reality of what Europe is. That's the first thing. And who are you who are you talking about when you say let I know you're gonna to get to it, but just so we're clear, when you say this by the same people being destabilized by the same people who yeah. Well, this is the whole point of the book. Right. Is when President Trump declared that there were some asshole countries and he wasn't so generous in his language. Yeah, we just have to be generous for radio. <laughs> 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 but, but when he when he char- made that characterization of some states, I thought it was incumbent upon me to correct the record. So now what is the record? The record is, let me just get to the page on the book, mm-hmm. because the book goes into... Haiti, Afghanistan, Philippines, Vietnam, Palestine, the entire continent of Africa, Somalia, Democratic Republic of Congo, Rwanda, El Salvador, Venezuela, and Puerto Rico. And then it ends up with the United States itself being one of those asshole countries. So basically, the United States has aided and abetted the destabilization and the destruction of whole countries. And in the process, then those countries then bear the onus of being called by a president who maybe is unaware, maybe is ignorant, or maybe just doesn't give a darn as if the conditions in those countries is the fault of those people themselves. Whereas there's an entire system that is at place that our president correctly diagnosed as being rigged. So the system is rigged, not just inside the United States, but the entire international system is rigged. And that the rigging of the international system was done by Democrats and Republicans. Because quite frankly, if you want to talk about uh, World War One and the creation of the Federal Reserve, that's not Republicans, that's Democrats. Okay? So we have a political system that was created by certain individuals without regard to party. So now why are we going to label people by party? We should label people or label ourselves by interest and then label other people by their affinity to or antagonism toward our interests. That's what it's always been, or that's the way it should always have been. But for whatever reason, we got hung up on political party, and 
so now at one time we were hung up on the Republican Party because Democrats wouldn't have us. Then after Franklin Delano Roosevelt, we became hung up on the Democratic Party where the African-American voters have been ever since. Go ahead. So um, then if we want to talk about imperialism, we have to acknowledge the shared responsibility for U.S. imperialism by both Democrats and Republicans. And I'm not talking about, say, for example, Woodrow Wilson. We don't need to go back that far. Let's just go back to Barack Obama, who single-handedly destroyed Libya. Well, I am looking at the clock, and I can't believe that I have run out of time in my little hour. So, But we're going to continue this conversation, and we're going to post it on our Patreon site. And hopefully folks will go there and check it out. I've been speaking with human rights activist and author, former Congress member, Cynthia McKinney. She served for 12 years in Congress representing the people of Georgia. Her latest book is How the United States Created S-Hole Countries. And that's on Clarity Press. Thank you so much for this segment. And we'll continue our conversation with you Part two on Patreon. Okay, great. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank our guests, Cynthia McKinney, Desiree Harp, Ruihana Panga, and Mariam at the annual meeting of the UN Commission on the Status of Women. Thanks to our contributors, Professor Gerald Horn, Michelle Roberts, and Chantel James. This is On the Ground, on thegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook, Twitter, under On the Ground, and we are also on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. And you can support On the Ground on Patreon. The music we played this hour included Coming Home by Women of the Calabash and Cindy Blackman live at Montreux 2011. A special announcement from those good folks at the Diversity Fund. They have a a new grant round for people of color-led social justice organizations here in Washington, D.C. They have a deadline uh, on April 5th for people to get in their applications, and you can get more information at thediversityfund.org. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.